Welcome back to another episode of Step Off Radio. I'm your host, Rob Camacho, and you're tuned in to the official podcast for Step Off Magazine. So it's August 2020, guys, and unless you've been living under a rock, or maybe even if you've been living under a rock, you all know that the coronavirus outbreak is still out of control here in the States, and things are a pretty long way from going back to normal, if they ever really do. As I'm sure you're all aware, due to the outbreak, we've really had to scale back how many guests we've been able to interview for the show. We've switched to conducting all of our interviews remotely, which has been rather difficult. There has definitely been a learning curve to this technology, but we're committed to bringing you all the best content that we possibly can. And from the bottom of our hearts, we really want to thank all of you that read the articles, listen to the podcast, and of course, share them all across social media. Um, thank you for sticking with us. We hope to have a few more episodes out for this last quarter of 2020, so we hope that you all will be there and join us for the last batch that we have lined up for you all. Twenty twenty has been marked by a variety of milestone fiftieth anniversaries, from tragic markers such as the Kent State killings, the Chicano moratorium, and the death of Chicano journalist Ruben Salazar, to more joyous celebrations such as the fiftieth anniversary of the first Earth Day and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or better known as the EPA. In many ways, the anniversaries marked by events of long ago have mirrored the frustration, pain, and even the occasional victory of today's contemporary struggles. Here in San Diego, this past April marked another big anniversary, the 50th anniversary marking the founding of Chicano Park, the historic national landmark located in the neighborhood of Barrio Logan, right here in San Diego. Festivities celebrating the park's golden anniversary were originally planned to take place in Barrio Logan this past spring at the 50th annual Chicano Park Day celebration. However, sadly, all celebrations were canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the dangers of holding large public events amidst the outbreak. While physical celebrations are all but completely off the table until well into next year, Chicano Park's colorful legacy has been marked by a variety of other heartfelt tributes from artists, musicians, performers, and community members all celebrating the park's rich tapestry of history. Of these tributes, perhaps none are as unique and ambitious as the spirit of Chicano Park, a new bilingual children's book written by author Beatriz Zamora and illustrated by artist Mayra Meza, which depicts the creation of Chicano Park. Having been nominated for Best Latino-Focused Children's Picture Book and Best Educational Theme Book through the Latino International Book Awards, The Spirit of Chicano Park is the first children's book dedicated to covering the park's history. For today's show, we had the honor of speaking with Beatriz Zamora about her work as an educator, an organizer in Barrio Logan, her nearly 40 years of teaching Azteca Chichimeca dancing, and her connection to Chicano Park, which ultimately inspired her to write a children's book celebrating its rich, vibrant history. Without further ado, we present to you our interview with Beatriz Zamora. So just uh, for our readers just uh, who may not be familiar with you, um, uh-huh. tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've done in the community here in San Diego. And just give us a little bit about your own background. Okay. So um, so my name is uh, Beatriz Zamora Aguilar, and I was born um, in Logan Heights. And at six months of age, my parents took me to live in Los Angeles, and that's where I was raised. Um, 
My parents were both from New Mexico and Arizona, and um, our roots go back many generations, actually before the land was uh, United States, uh, to the roots of this of this country. My mother's family did immigrate from Guanajuato um, around the Mexican Revolution, but my father's family and roots have always been in the New Mexico um, land. So I was raised in Los Angeles, and I grew up in the eastern part of Los, uh, Los Angeles County called a little town called La Puente. It's a very highly industrialized area, and... Um, very much, at that time, very much a Chicano community. Now, if you were to go there, it's very Mexicano. And um, I graduated from high school in 1972, and my dad had passed away two years prior to that. And so um, <clears throat> with his passing, because he was a World War II veteran, um, I started to receive veterans benefits and also social security benefits. Um, and so when I graduated from high school, um, which I just barely graduated from high school, <laughs> I was a very rebellious teenager. <laughs> um, and so um, when I graduated from high school, my mom said, well, you know, you got to go to college now. And it's like, what? <laughs> What's that? You know, uh, I didn't know anyone who'd ever gone to college. And she said, well, you got to go to college because we're getting uh, 300 and I think it was like $26 from Social Security a month and then another like 100 and something from veterans benefits. And you got to keep going because we got to keep getting this money. And so um, being very fright frightened of the idea of going on for more education because I really didn't like school. Um, and I didn't think that I was capable or able to handle that kind of you know, level of instruction. I went to the local community college and I ended up studying uh, for a couple years, kind of wandering around. But one of the first classes I took was a Mexican American studies class. And that's what it was called at that time. And it really opened my eyes to um, the fact that I did have, you know, a history, and I had a history that I could be proud of, and there was something deeper, you know, in our heritage that we had never been taught, I hadn't been taught in um, public education. So um, that was during, like, that was like 1972, 1973, Vietnam War had already happened, all the protests, I had been involved uh, a little bit in Chicano activism in high school. And we've done, we did some high school walkouts. And I don't know that we really understood the issues, but, hey, you know, it was exciting and fun to, you know, walk out of the school. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so we were so we were starting to build, I was starting to build a, a political and social consciousness at that time. And so I continued um, at, there for a while. I did end up dropping out for a while, and then I went back. And eventually I transferred to Cal State Fullerton. And that's when I started to take more ethnic studies courses, Chicano studies courses, and sociology courses, and and I got my bachelor's degree. And um, in 1978, I got my bachelor's degree, and then um, 
you know, you never know, you never know who, who's going to be a mentor for you. It really, uh, it really can be just one person. Um, so this one professor that I had, uh, he was kind of a chubby Irish guy, and he had really red hair. I can't remember his name. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. <laughs> he, um, so what are you going to do now? You know, and I said, I guess I'm going to go to work full time. I mean, I had always worked. I worked my whole way through college. And um, I was working for a welfare rights organization at that time with a bunch of law students. And law did not seem interesting to me because I didn't particularly care for a lot of these law students that I worked with. But we were doing really important work in the community, and I, I found a, a voice also of social activism representing um, welfare clients that weren't getting, um, you know, properly served by the social service system. So he suggested that I... Um, what, you know, he asked me what I was interested in. I said, well, I'd like counseling. And um, the reason I liked counseling was I did like working with people, but I also knew that I had had a really horrible counselor in high school that um, really didn't help me. You know, in fact, I thought, I think she caused me more harm than help. And I thought, you know, it doesn't have to be that way for kids. So he recommended two master's degree programs and, of course, you have to remember, this was like pre-Internet time. There was really, you know, really no way to kind of research stuff easily. I was too timid to go in and ask for help. And so um, he recommended two programs. One was at Cal State San Bernardino, and the other was at San Diego State. So I applied to both, and eventually I got into both of them, and then I moved to San Diego. And that's when I decided that, okay, I'm home again. I was born here, and now I'm going to learn about this place. I'm going to reconnect with my cultural roots and make a life here. And that's what I've done. And so while I've been here in San Diego, I have been, um, I was a counselor for a while with the San Diego Job Corps, and then I worked for San Diego Unified with preschool children. Eventually I ended up where I really wanted to be, which was working with adults, and I worked at um, San Diego Mesa College with college students, and then I came over to Southwestern. I eventually became the dean. I retired as a dean of counseling and student services. And I've been involved in uh, learning my ancient indigenous traditions of Mexico. So I'm a, an Aztec Chichimeca dancer and been involved in teaching that with my husband and my family for about 40 years in San Diego. Been involved with the Chicano Park Steering Committee and the Centro Cultural de la Raza. And, you know, there's a march. I'm usually out there. Um, I haven't been lately because of COVID, and I'm an old lady now. <laughs> My kids won't let me go out of the house. <laughs> Gotta stay indoors. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm, fighting this, I'm fighting the fight behind the scenes, you know, with letters and commentary and things like that. So I'm a social justice and cultural warrior. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, actually, kind of leading on to my next question, like you said, you've been teaching Azteca uh, Chichimeca dancing for um, close to the past 40 years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, tell us, how did you first, um, how did you first get into um, to instructing dancing and also what significance does it play in the broader context of um, Chicano culture and Chicano's embracing their indigenous identity? Yeah, well, I think it has um, 
everything to do with that. And it's it's really beautiful to see, you know, kind of where things have come. But when I when I first saw the Ganso, and I, I might have told you this before, probably did, um, I was still a student at Cal State Fullerton. And um, the famous Taco Day, we were having a Mexican folkloric day. And I was making tacos, and all of a sudden these danzantes come in, and they formed a circle, and they started dancing. And they didn't have a microphone, so they weren't really speaking to the audience. They were just dancing. And when I saw them dancing, I just had to i had to get close, so I ran over there and um, sat down on the grass and was watching them. And I just, I just got these chills, um, and I started kind of, my eyes started tearing up, and I really didn't know what I was experiencing or why I was feeling so emotionally connected to the stanza. Um, and then um, a few years later, when I moved to San Diego, I met my future husband, and I found out that he was a danzante, and that he had actually been with that group dancing. And um, then we, you know, eventually got married. And so at first, you know, I really loved the danza. I thought it was a beautiful tradition, but. In those days, I was, you know, kind of an introverted, you know, a little bit timid person. So I didn't, you know, I didn't relish the idea of actually dancing in front of people. Um, so for about six months after I got married, I just kind of sat on the sidelines and watched the danza. But I knew that it it, it touched my heart and it really um, um, brought to life something that I always felt, which was that I knew that I had Native American heritage. Uh, my dad used to always call me Apache. So I, I knew that I had Native American heritage. My grandmother had talked about it a little bit. You know, Mexicans don't like to talk about it, at least not in those days. And um, I liked the idea of having this way to kind of connect. So eventually, after a few months of being married and sitting on the sidelines, I just jumped in one day. And so as we continued to learn and develop and travel to Mexico and my husband was the first Chicano in the United States to actually be recognized as a, a, a capitan. The danza set up kind of like a military system. It's a very disciplined system. And we have generales and we have capitanes and sargentos. So he was the first Chicano to be named as a capitan. And that brought with it a lot of responsibility to continue to teach the tradition and to learn it. So we were learning and teaching at the same time and still learning and teaching to this day because it's a really profound tradition. Um, and so, yeah, so we just were teaching classes at Chicano Park and then we were teaching at the Centro at Sherman Heights. We eventually ended up in Imperial Beach and then San Isidro. And that's kind of where we've decided to make more of our home these last many years in San Isidro, um, although we're still very connected to the park. But, you know, by pulling out of the park, that allowed room for other groups that started to spring up. And now in San Diego, we probably have, I don't know, maybe eight, maybe ten groups. Some of them are more formal than others. Um, but um, I, what I, when I look back to when I was a young woman and um, the imagery and the things that we connected to being Chicano, it was all about, you know, um, Santana music and um, uh, mariachi. And, but there was not really a whole lot of connection to our indigenous past. 
And I do think that the Lanza, when it came to the United States in around 1974, one of our jefes, Florencio Yescas, was one of the first people to bring it, along with another gentleman named Andres Segura. Florencio worked more in California, and Andres Segura focused more in Texas. Um, it opened up our eyes as Chicanos that, wait a minute, you know, here's a living example of this indigenous heritage that we have that we, we've never acknowledged because we've been too busy uh, first trying to pass as white, right, and then realizing that, you know, we are who we are. We can try to fool people, but we know who we are and they know who we are. And then trying to then taking full responsibility and ownership of being Mexican and then terming ourselves Chicanos because we were Mexican-Americans with a political perspective and a social justice perspective. And then taking it the next step, which is, wait a minute, we have indigenous roots. So the Zanza, we really strongly believe, opened that door. And after a while, you started to see more and more people dancing, more and more people liking the danza. Even if they didn't dance, they appreciated it. Um, you know, there were times in the beginning when our own people would kind of laugh at us, like, wait, who are you people? What are you doing? Uh, made them nervous, made them uncomfortable in their skin. Um, but after a while, more and more people started to take ownership of it. And then you started to hear people naming their children with indigenous names, the murals in the park started to evolve, you know, with more indigenous symbolisms. And um, I think now a large majority of, at least in California, a large, large majority of Chicanos and Mexicanos get that connection. Even if they don't practice it, they like it. And now when there's any kind of community event, somebody you know, is getting married, somebody is passing away, somebody wants to do a naming ceremony for their children. You know, all of us are always being called in to fulfill these roles because people connect. They're now connecting with that ancient indigenous spirit that we have. Mm -hmm. Another uh, aspect that you've been involved in is advocacy for Chicano Park. Um, as you said, that you're, uh, you're a member on the steering committee as well. And your connection to the park goes a very long way. Uh, what was your first experience or introduction to Chicano Park, and how did you become such a vocal advocate for that space in the community? Um, well, I mean, I'm one of many that are involved in the steering committee and that uh, you know, have been a kind of a consistent voice for many years. But, I mean, the first time that I went to the park was when I had just come to San Diego and, you know, people said, oh, you got you to gotta see Chicano Park. I'd never heard of it before. And so I went over there with some friends and I, I actually, it's funny, I still have some old photographs of standing in front of murals and taking pictures. And um, that was the first time I stepped foot onto the park. But when I started to get more of an understanding of what the park meant was when I attended my first Chicano Park day. And that was in 1979. So the park you know, was founded in 1970. So it was already nine years old. By then, there was actually a kiosco. It had built. It had been built, I believe, in 90, in uh, in 1977. My book has my book has a timeline, and it's in there. 77 or 78 is when they built the kiosco. And um, the year I went, they were having you know the big Channel Park Day celebration and. 
I just fell in love with my cultura, you know, just walking around and taking in all the vibes and uh, seeing the different kinds of dances and the music and the art. And as I started to explore and learn more about the struggle that the people of Logan Heights uh, encountered in making that part, you know, it was a fight to get that part. I really connected with that and I felt like, you know, yeah, it's important. You know, here's a community that was um, destruct, destroyed by um, the building of, you know, the Interstate 5 Freeway and the Coronado Bridge and the people were not consulted, you know. And when, when you look back over history, you see that it's always in the poorer neighborhoods and the people who, uh, you know, the people who appear to have to be voiceless where they come through with freeways and they come through with... Um, toxic, you know, um, factories and, and polluting businesses. And they and they put them in those neighborhoods because they know that they can get away with it. And that's exactly what happened in Logan Heights. And so the people rose up and said, no, this is our park. And I just felt such pride and felt so connected to that that I just knew, you know, there's, there's something here. There's something very sacred to me about Chicano Park. And that land has a certain spirit. And I'm connected to that. I don't know if I can put that into words, but it's just um, it's just a feeling. When I go there, I feel like I'm home. I feel like I'm in the womb. I feel like this is my place. And and you know, there's you know homeless people hanging around, and there's druggies, and you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in that park, and there's a lot of good stuff that happens in that park. But I feel at home there, and I feel safe there, and it's. Um, just a small symbol of that this is our land too. You know, we're people of the Americas and that's a little tiny little slice of the Americas that that we feel ownership of. And so it's a example of who we are as a culture and uh, who we what we can do if we come together as a community. Chicano Park is actually the central focus of your book, The Spirit of Chicano Park, which is a historical um, fiction targeted for young children. And in our original interview, you said that um, that this was an idea that you had had for a, for a really long time, actually. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process of what inspired you to start writing this book and how you came to decide to have Chicano Park as a central topic to explore? Sure, sure. And it's amazing, you know, timing. It's really interesting. Um, but I, you know, I always liked this notion of storytelling. I'm always, you know, always very much attracted to a storyteller. And I had one one aunt in particular, Matia, that I really, um, she wasn't like someone that I liked a lot, but I liked being in her presence because I liked her storytelling ability. And I could just sit and listen to her tell stories for hours. And so as a kid growing up, you know, really kind of poor, living in the outskirts of, you know, the hub of Los Angeles, and um, we had a really dysfunctional family, a lot of issues in the family. I spent a lot of time alone. Plus, I was the youngest um, of my siblings, and the next one next to me is like six years older than me, and he didn't want to have too much to do with me. So I was by myself a lot, and I used to think and fantasize and create stories in my mind. So I think I've always 
had the storytelling ability um, and love for it. And um, so as I grew up and I went to college and all that good stuff, I got involved with, I went to a conference and I heard about this new program that was called the Puente Project. And the program was about um, helping Chicano students understand that they had what it took to go on and to complete you know, college and higher education, but that they had to develop a voice and they had to develop writing skills. And, um, and so it was a program that was started up in the Bay Area, and I was at San Diego Mesa College at the time. And so I came back, and I, I was a part-time counselor. And, you know, when you're a part-time counselor, you really are kind of a voiceless person. But I decided I was going to take it to the, to the chancellor and ask him if we could have the program at Mesa College. So I did, and we had the chancellor was Augie Gallegos at the time, and he was a really cool dude. So I asked him about it, and he had already heard about the program, and he was interested, and I was interested, so we made it happen. So the Puente Project really started in San Diego Community College District at San Diego Mesa College, and I was the first counselor. Well, through that program and through the training that you get, you uh, whether you're a counselor or an English teacher, because the model is it's counseling, English, uh, English writing, and then there's a mentoring component. Um, and so the English teacher and the counselor go through lots of training. And part of the training is we had to write a lot. We had to write stories of our childhood. And I loved that piece of it. And that's when I realized that, you know, I'm not bad at writing. I'm, I'm, I'm better than I thought I was, right? So um, I always had, that was back in 19, I think it was like about 1980, let's see my dog, uh, about 1984 that we started the Puente Project, or 85. And so I, I realized then that I liked writing and I really wanted to write more and I wanted to write things that had to do with culture um, for kids so that kids could help to develop their identity, especially Chicano kids. Um, and it's not that I'm ethnocentric, but I just feel like, you know, you should you should write from a, an authentic voice, and this is my experience. And so I wanted to write books for Chicano kids to learn more about their history and their culture and to feel better about themselves because they live in a, in a society where they are of the oppressed, you know, one of the oppressed groups, and they're constantly getting messages of how they are inferior and that they don't measure up and they're not of value. So it was important to me to do that. But then, you know, I got busy. I had kids. I was working. I was dancing, involved in social justice, and I had to put writing on the side. Um, and so now that I retired, I said, okay, i got to get back to my writing. Um, and so I thought, okay, one of the first things I want to write about, I've always wanted to, is I want to write about the importance of Chicano Park because the Chicano Park is a symbol of a community that found its voice and took social action, took, took um, nonviolent action and created a beautiful park that now is um, world-renowned. It's, you know, people know about it in other countries internationally for the art, um, and now it's got national landmark status with the U.S. government that happened in 2016. And so even more so, I thought it was really, really important to write this story about a community, you know, rising up, if you, if you will, from the ashes after being, you know, really destroyed. Because that 
community of Logan Heights had a population of 20,000 residents. And then Freeway 5 came in and the Coronado Bridge came in and they went down to 5,000. And if you look at city plans, what I've been told by many people is that um, the plans to build the Coronado Bridge originally was further north. It was, it was further north because that was a more direct route over to Coronado Island. Um, but because that, those were neighborhoods with, you know, basically white neighborhoods, people with more voice and more power, they decided to move it further back, and that's why it has actually that amazing shape that's, you know, internationally acclaimed as well as a beautiful bridge, um, but it destroyed Logan Heights. So these people came together and they demonstrated that it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you don't have a lot of education, but if you have um, a heart and you believe and you work towards something, you can make it happen. So to me, it symbolizes something very, very important about self-determination. And so that's why I wanted to write the story. And lo and behold, it comes out at a time... um, you know, for, I wanted it to be, the debut would be at Chicano Park Day this year, which would have been our 50th anniversary. But, of course, COVID hit, and we weren't able to have our celebration. But instead, we have Black Lives Matter and all the social justice talking about people matter. And that is the essence of the book. And so it's, like, amazing that the timing worked out the way <laughs> it did. But that's why I wrote the book. I want kids to understand that they matter and that they, they should participate and that, you know, they should vote, they should become active, they should speak out, they have a right to do that in this country. How long was the process to um, write this book from beginning to uh, end? I remember you saying that, like, this was, this was an idea that you had had for a, a long time and it just kind of happens, the, it lines up in this um, this moment in time where there's so much activism going on as well, and also with the 50th anniversary of the park this year. Yeah. Well, you know, I probably wrote, I don't know, two or three stories over the last 20 years, because when I could sneak out a little bit of time here and there, I would, I would write. And, um, and they were usually uh, revolving around Chicano Park. You know, one had to do with a little girl that um, actually did Danza Azteca, and that she was going to have this big debut and dance at the park. and you know, diff- A few different little stories that I wrote, but I never did anything with them. And then, um, like I said, about, I think maybe, I want to say maybe about a year ago, maybe two years ago, when after I had retired, I decided to start taking um, a couple of writing courses. And so I took a, a writing course just through a group called Writers, Inc. And... Um, it, they're just, you know, little seminar courses, a couple weeks here or there, no college credit or anything like that. And um, that's when I started to kind of brainstorm again, and I came up with this idea of this story for Chicano Park. And um, then I would say that was maybe about two years ago. And then about a year ago, I got serious with it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to really delve into this. So I'm going to start meeting with um, all the community members that I know that have been involved for, you know, close to 50 years or 50 years and just hear their perspective because I wanted I wanted to write something that was really truthful and not just my own, you know, biased perspective. And so I spent time interviewing 
for about maybe six months, I interviewed tons of people and recorded and transcribed. <laughs> I learned so much more about the park. And um, that it was hard, you know. I did all that research, and then I had to write a children's book that I could, I really, you know, children's books are supposed to be, like children's picture books are supposed to be somewhere about five to 700 words for the whole story. It is really hard to tell the story of Chicago Park in five to 700 yeah. words. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a struggle. And so that's really the hardest part of a children's book is making it entertaining and yet um, not, you know, using thousands of words. So I was really, really concerned about the whole word count. And then on top of that, I wanted to make it bilingual because I felt like there are a lot of kids that Spanish is their first language. But not only that, a lot of their parents... um, might live in Barrio Logan and have no clue of what the park symbolizes. Just say, oh, que bonito, es un parque bonito, you know. But they don't really understand what's behind the park because it's much more than just a cool place, you know. Um, and so that's why it was important for me to make it bilingual so that it could be educational as well for the parents and the family. And so um, I struggled with that, and I thought about trying to get it out with, you know, regular publishers that are out there because everyone is saying in the publishing industry that they need diverse voices and they need own voices. They need people writing stuff that actually, you know, they come from that particular subgroup. And, you know, so if you're a woman writing about women's children's books, about women's issues, or if you're gay, that you're writing about gay issues or or whatever. But the truth is, my experience with publishers, because I did send some other stuff out, um, is that, you know, they they want it, but they want it through their lens. And I'm a person with a lot of integrity, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to water down something or, you know, whitewash it up just so that you'll want to print it. And it won't be the true and profound message that it can be. So that's when I finally decided maybe about... Eight months ago, you know, I'm just going to do this thing myself. I've always wanted to anyways. And so we decided to create a little company, and we were Tolteca, Tolteca Press, and um, we are going to be publishing more of these kinds of stories and, and other kinds of books as well. And we're just going, you know, we're working with a, a printer that does the print-on-demand, and the quality is pretty decent. It's not, you know, it's not like uh, offset printing, but it's pretty, it's pretty good. And um, I realized through this process that we have, or I have, a lot of social capital. I mean, I just have so many people that I could call on for help, you know. All these experts in the community that let me interview them, that gave me just tons of information that I can do so much more with if I want. Um, the artist, wonderful artist, Maida Mesa, her first opportunity to illustrate a children's book, she never even thought that's something she'd want to do. And when I met her and I liked her art, I asked her if she'd work with me and she jumped right on it. Um, my son, who just finished his PhD in linguistics, is going to be a professor at San Diego State in the fall. 
he also has a great talent for art and layout, and he used to work for UCLA and laid out many of their books and publications. So he did all my layout and, you know, the typeset and all that stuff. Um, my husband's excellent in Spanish. I'm a bocha, but he really speaks good Spanish. <laughs> and so he and a couple other people help with the translation. I mean, it's just like anybody I asked, they said yes. So I feel like... Yeah, I'm getting more of the attention because I'm the one that put the book out and I'm the author. But it really was a work of a community. And, um, yeah, and I and so, yeah, I'm really excited. And the Chicano Park Steering Committee is uh, sanctioning the book and they're very happy with it. And, of course, I think I mentioned to you before, any profits that are made from the sale of the book, I'm going to be donating them to Chicano Park Steering Committee and the Chicano Park Museum and Cultural Center. Um, because to me, you know, this isn't about money. This is about the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you expressed, like, the desire to publish this on your own because you don't want a, um, a, a publisher, like you said, in a sense, to water down the vision of the book, which a lot of times happens, especially to writers of color. Um, you know, they want these stories a lot of times, but they want it told through a, a white mainstream lens. You know, how important is it for people, particularly young people, to see themselves represented in these mediums, you know, whether it be film, television, or like in this case, children's books? Well, I think, um, as, as we know, um, we, many of us grew up not seeing ourselves represented anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so you start to, you know, that that's a form of racism when you feel like you're not seen, you know, you're not, you're ignored, you can, you, you don't, you don't matter. Um, so I think it's really, really important for identity purposes. But in terms of also uh, the sense of bolzer, of feeling like you can, you can do things, that you can make things happen, um, seeing role models that look and, you know, act kind of like your family members but are out there doing things, you know, now that you have um, politicians and you have, you know, some actors and some athletes out there that represent your culture, you know, it, it helps you as a young person realize that, yeah, you know, they did it, so I can do it. You know, I, I could do that too and start to feel like you matter and that you have um, something to contribute to this world. So I think it's really, really important for kids to be able to see to see themselves um, in these various mediums, as you mentioned. And I think it's also important that when they see that, that they see authenticity, you know, um, not to not to you know criticize him because I think he really tried to do a good thing, but um, that actor or comedian John, um, what's his name, Leguizamo? Is that his name? Oh, John Leguizamo. Yeah. Yeah, he's Puerto Rican. He recently did. A, a, it, I don't think too many people saw it, but he did a little play. It was a, a play that he put on at um, it was at UCSB, and it was called. Not my Aztec, but Aztec was spelled A-S-S, like, you know, <laughs> Aztec. <laughs> and so it was a play, and it, and it, was, it was funny, you know, and, and um, they 
asked us to dance for one of the little opening things and not really knowing too much about it, but thinking, well, you know, it has potential. We went ahead and did that. Um, sometimes we do things like that um, if we can see some other benefits. So for us, it was like, well, let's do this, and then they're going to give all the kids in the group you know, free tickets to go see this play. Mm-hmm. So we do things like that to try to expose our kids to a bigger world. And so um, when we went to see the play, it was like, okay, you know, it, it was cool, but there were just a lot of inaccuracies about history in it, you know. And supposedly he's been writing this play for 10 years. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, you wrote this play for 10 years and you couldn't get these things accurate. He couldn't even get how you say the word Mexica correct, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I, you know, that's too bad. But when I looked around the audience, by and large, it was, you know, it was a, a, a diverse audience, but mostly white. I thought, well, okay, it's not really accurate. There are some problems, but overall, it portrayed us in a positive way. And so that's good, right? That's good that mainstream people are seeing that. (laughs) (laughs) That white people are seeing that, you know what, these people kind of have some value, you know. But, um, yeah, so I think it's important that whatever we put out there that it be as authentic and honest as possible um, for our kids, you know, for our kids to to see and to to be able to say, okay, we're complex, you know, that we do have our – we're not – you know, what have you seen? What have you seen in TV over the last 20 years? When you see a Mexican, they're usually the, the criminal, right? Mm-hmm. They're usually, you know, they're always the maid or the gardener, right? They're always the and help. So, and that's truthful, and that's honest. There is that element, but there's other things, too, that are really wonderful about our culture. That needs to be portrayed. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, like this importance for authenticity and, and nuance is really important when we're represented in whatever medium it may be. Um, Why is it important to you that children know the history of Chicano Park, and not just necessarily kids here in San Diego, but in this broader context um, all throughout the country, actually, as well? Because what what Chicano Park represents is it represents, um, to me, it represents resilience. You know, resiliency is what will get you through life. (laughs) Resiliency is what will allow you to put your mark, you know, in your world and and make a change for the better, if that's your goal. And so that's what Chicago Park symbolizes. It's Yeah, it was a group of poor people who came together and fought for this little tiny piece of land that now is a national landmark and highly esteemed by many, not all. Um, And they... They found their voice, they took action, and they were resilient. You know, they came back, you know, from the ashes, if you will, right? They, you know, their neighborhood had been destroyed, and they brought it back. They've gotten rid of a lot of the toxic uh, factories and, and plants and things that were in the region and the junkyards. And so they they have worked diligently to improve their neighborhood. And, of course, now the big fight is... Um, um, gentrification. You know, <laughs> now that we have Petco Park and that the city is expanding into Logan Heights, now you have a lot of other people moving into the region and wanting to put, you know, their little foo foo shops up and things. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now we got to fight that. Yeah. But, but um, you know, uh, 
yeah, I think that's why. I think that's why it's important for people and kids across the nation. Even internationally, it is bilingual. You can easily go to Mexico, you know, uh, to say, you know what, you do matter, your voice matters, and and you have to develop this resiliency. If they tell you no, you got to come back. If they tell you no again, you got to come back again, you know, until you get what you know is right, what you know is good for the greater good. With this past May, Chicano Park just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And April. April, yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, this past April, it's the park celebrated its 50th anniversary, um, and as you said, the park is now it's a, it's a national nationally recognized landmark, and all the time I always come across people um, who are visiting the park, who are you know people might be out of town, or they might even live in California, but they come to San Diego, and they've never heard of Chicano Park before. Um, and it's a significant event, not just in the community's history, but Chicano history as a whole. And at times it seems like it doesn't necessarily get the same recognition as say like the Chicano moratorium or the blowouts in the sixties. Uh, why do you, as a historian kind of yourself and someone from the community, why do you think that Chicano park doesn't necessarily, um, have the same recognition as some of these other events in the broader context? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question, and it was something that I was um, actually talking with my son about since he's going to be, uh, like I said, he just got hired as a professor for Chicano and Chicano Studies at San Diego State, and he is thrilled because he got his Ph.D. in linguistics, and he's been studying um, indigenous languages primarily as uh, Nahuatl and Kumeyaay. Um, and he grew up in the Chicano movement because, you know, wherever we went, our kids were there. <laughs> so they had to be at all the marches, and they had to, you know, they've been dancing this their whole lives. And um, he's learned a lot about culture, art, dance, music, you know, um, on the borderlands, and it so happens that Chicano Chicano Studies were offering a position for someone in these kinds of arts in the borderlands. And so, you know, he's a great example that, you know, you can't, don't limit yourself, right? Because when he first looked at the job description, he says, no, well, my PhD is linguistics. They're looking for someone, you know, with a PhD in some kind of artistic field. Or, but, you know, linguistics is really the study of language as part of it. Um, and so he applied, and because of his lifelong work that he's done in the community, he got the job. And so he gets to live in his favorite city in the whole wide world, and he gets to teach the subjects that he loves the most, you know, plus he gets to teach uh, a linguistics class. But, you know, what, to become a full professor, you have to continue to do research. And so one of the things that he wants to focus on is really giving San Diego Chicano movement its due in the in the whole movimiento in the world. Because yeah, we, we were talking about that. It's like somehow we don't we haven't reached that level of, you know, acknowledgement for the work that we've done and we need to do more uh, with getting that getting that out there. For instance, the Centro Cultural de la Raza, 
what I have been told by the people who actually helped to form that is that that was the first centro cultural in the nation. Okay. Then after that, there was, you know, one in Texas, in Colorado, the famous ones with Corky Gonzalez in Colorado and Los Angeles and San Francisco. But there's very few that have been able to still exist after all these years. And the Central is one that's still been consistent and existed all these years in the same location. And yet, I don't think most people know that, you know. As you say, Chicano Park. A lot of people know about it, but not everybody knows about it. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know why. And that's one of the things that my son, you know, wants to work on as a researcher. But I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're so close to the Mexican border. And it could be that, you know, because we have this, um, you know, many of the Chicanos and Mexicanos who live here have a binational perspective, you know, they're kind of going back and forth all the time, that maybe that has something to do with it. Um, you know, further north in Los Angeles, pretty much if you're there, you know, that's a whole different mentality. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not completely intertwined with Mexico the way we are here. So I think that might have something to do with it. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. You know, I think that would be a really interesting research piece. I know that this book will help to, I mean, I'm amazed. I put it out on Facebook since we couldn't do, you know, the big um, book reveal. And a lot of people want us to do, you know, book readings and book signings and all that. But right now we can't do any of that. So I just put it out on Facebook. And I have had orders already from, um, I just sent out a bunch. Some went to Washington, Minnesota, uh, Massachusetts, you know, um, <laughs> Texas. I mean, it's really interesting. Like people are, it's starting to get out there. So one of the things I'm going to do with this book is I'm going to be applying for several uh, children's books awards that are out there, and you know, it'd be wonderful if it won an award. But more than that, I just want it to get on these different reading lists throughout the nation. You know, uh, it's also on Amazon right now, and it's already sold. You know, about forty copies on Amazon, which totally surprised me. Wow! Uh, so people are finding it; they're finding it online as well. And I think, you know, if we start to produce more uh, documents like this, I think we can really elevate ourselves for the good work that we've done. Because we inspired the mural movement in the whole nation. I mean, we believe that. Um, the murals that were painted here, Guillermo Arando was one of the first muralists, and he lives up in um, uh, Castroville area, Salinas area. And he um, he says, you know, yeah, you know, we started it at the Centro Cultural de la Raza. I worked on the first mural, he says. And... And after that, we started to see murals coming up in other parts of the country, you know. So so we've done a lot. Ballet Folklorico, I mean, this is where um, Ballet Folklorico, not where it necessarily started in the United States, but where it took on a political, you know, um, message. The Lanza, you know, this is one of the first places that the Lanza came. And my husband's dissertation um for his PhD in education was all about this notion of uh, creating sacred space and what the Lanza has done for our communities. Again, that's sitting on a shelf, right? We need to get that in a publishable format for the layman to read. You know, we need to get it out there. So 
it's just a lot of work that we need to do to get the message out there. And I, I can't really answer your question. I just know that we need more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that I know when I moved here from Los Angeles, um, having just completed my bachelor's degree, I was at a point then where I was becoming, you know, very, very politically involved. And um, I... I fit with the people at Chicano Park because they also had this greater, you know, uh, perspective about social justice. But by and large, you know, the, the students that I met when I came to work at Southwestern College and some of the students that I would meet at uh, Mesa College, in the beginning, like, they had no clue. You know, they had no clue. And it was just, you know, this attitude of, well, you know, we just kind of fit in. And we just, you know, it's like, no, wait a minute. You know, there's something more, something more to be discussed. And so I was always really impressed by the difference that I felt from my experience in Los Angeles to coming here. And that um, there was also even a greater difference from the inner city community as compared to those that live, you know, a little bit more in the suburbs. And I think San Diego overall is kind of like a big, humongous suburb. You know, like we don't have like the inner city like you have in Los Angeles or that you have in San Francisco. Maybe that's the difference, you know? I don't know. That's true, too. I never I never took that into consideration as well. <coughs> yeah. But we got work to do. Yes. <laughs> I'm not ready to go under yet. COVID doesn't get to take me yet. <laughs> um, well, and, and part of bringing um, awareness to this actually is going to be the um, the Chicano Park um, Museum and Cultural Center, uh, which, as you've mentioned, uh, part of the proceeds of this book go to that. Um, can you tell our readers a little bit about the um, the Museum and Cultural Center? and uh, what's, what the goal is and hopefully when it will tentatively open? Um, kind of, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that involved with it, but my good friend Josie Talamantes is the lead on that, and she has um, you know, developed a nonprofit organization that's on a board that's overseeing that whole process. I understand, I was just told... Friday or the other day by Victor Ochoa that the inside of the building is almost done with the renovations. The city has actually um, provided that. And Josie's been, Josie Talamantes grew up and was raised in Logan Heights. As a uh, young woman, she ended up moving to Sacramento and she worked for the California Arts Council for like 20 some years. And so she knows everything that there is to know about the arts and about, you know, building a museum and curating and making sure, I mean, they had to do a whole revive uh, or revamp of the air conditioning and, you know, all of the temperature control is really important in a museum. And so um, she's been working on that. And the idea was that it would open this year of 2020. I think they're still on track for that. But again, you know, with, this whole pandemic, everything's been, you know, kind of jeopardized. Um, and the goal of the the center, from what I understand, is that it's it's going to be a place to to do what this book has done, you know. But of course, at a much deeper level, tree uh, of the murals help people understand what the murals really symbolize, what they're about. 
Um, and to also have like some meeting rooms and rooms for, um, you know, like uh, seminars and classes and have special speakers come in. I mean, the work that any museum does, except that this one would be a much more active and thriving museum located right right there in Chicano Park. And I know that, you know, they want to have various, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? I don't want to say home-based, but, um, you know, regular exhibits on on the dance and the different dances and the music and the art of Chicano Park. Lowriders is another big part of it. I'm sure the Brown Berets will have a... a you know, an exhibit. So just like a real Chicano history, um, kind of like what my book outlines, but but even much, much more. And then, of course, live performances. I'm sure that would be part of it as well. So, because in the back of my book, I've um, interviewed and showcased, I think, 12 different individuals. And so we have uh, three artists, we have musicians, Chucky, Chucky Sanchez is uh, highlighted. Um, his wife and her family have been involved in Ballet Focorico. Um, Azteca, of course, I couldn't leave that out. Um, Ballet, um, Lowriders and Brown Berets and just organizational leadership and social justice. You know, so all that has been focused on in the back of the book. So I would imagine the museum would have that kind of focus in addition to, you know, uh, more you know, things that are happening on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, when we when we conducted our first interview, um, the book had just come out. It was like the end of May, beginning of June. Um, uh-huh. And of course, you know, COVID has kind of, um, kind of hamstringed the rollout of it. But online, you said that um, the book, the book has been selling. I believe you said that like, um, you guys actually sold out of the first print, correct? Yeah, sold. Actually, I sold out of two prints already. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, I, and I got two more coming. You know, I up I up the ante this time because it's like, oh my god, I can't keep up with this. <laughs> so overall, the um, the response has been very positive to this book. I would imagine. Yes. Yes. Have you been able to get? Um, have any um, schools? Uh, reached out to you guys for purchasing the book so they could have them in libraries and available to students? Um, I had one school administrator reach out, and I responded, and I haven't heard anything back. Um, I've also had uh, some librarians purchase some books and saying that they want to do more with that. Um, MANA of San Diego, Mexican-American National Women's Association, the North chapter, they're very interested in buying books for their kids. Uh, Casa Familiar is overseeing a grant. Um, I think it's a Promised Neighborhoods grant. They want to buy a chunk, but, you know, they're again looking at the budget. So I've had, yeah, quite a bit of interest. Um, to be honest with you, I have not marketed it the way that I would like to market because I just didn't have the books, you know. It's taking a long time. Uh, the printing company I'm using, normally they will fill an order within five to seven days. But right now they're taking about 25 days to fill an order. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it has to do with, one, their demand is up, and two, because they're dealing with COVID. So they have, you know, employees working from home and, you know, the whole 
the whole spacing and all those issues. And so they just can't get things out as quickly. So I really haven't launched the kind of marketing I would like to do because I just don't want to be so bombarded and have to tell people, well, you got to wait, you know? <laughs> so, um, like right now, I am, I have filled all but maybe about 35 orders, and those people are just going to have to wait till the next shipment comes in. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where we're at, but I, I do have ideas, and I would like to get the book in front of whoever it is that makes decisions for, um, you know, like for elementary schools, like a recommended reading list, that kind of thing that comes from the office of the... Um, Office of the Teacher Credentialing and Education in Sacramento. I like to get in touch with those people. I need to. I just need to ask the right person who knows the right person for me to speak to. But I haven't, like I said, I haven't pursued a lot of that because I haven't had books on hand. Um, but I think that for those people who want to place big orders, and if they can, if they can, they might be better off actually going through. Um, you know, like Amazon, and because it is listed, if you do a Google search of the title of the book, you're going to see that there are a lot of, um, like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all of them. They're buy, they're selling it. They don't have it in their stores, but they order it from the same company I do, and then we get a residual from that. Um, and then there's also an ebook. We created an ebook. So again, I had one high school principal who said she's really interested in purchasing ebooks, you know, for her school. So, you know, it's going to take a little while and COVID has really slowed everything down, but I think it's going to have a pretty, I, I was actually shocked <laughs> at the response. It's been uh, quite healthy. Yeah. Yeah. As a, um, you know, despite the slowdown, how has it been as a writer to see such a positive reaction from the community to your work? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that question because I don't know that they're so excited about my writing work, but they're really excited about the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the next book that I want to write, I, I've already written it. I just need to revise it, um, the story. I'm sure that's not going to have the same kind of appeal because it's not Chicano Park, you know, um, but it has to do with... Um, it has to do with how children who live in households with parents who are undocumented experience the world. Mm -hmm. So again, that's a really timely subject. Um, but again, I don't think that will that book will have the kind of appeal that this one does because this is Chicano Park. Mm -hmm. You know, but when, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> one last question. Um, so. If, we're here this year with the 50th anniversary of Chicano Park. It's um, now a national landmark, and it draws people from all over the world. And it's truly a testament to Chicano empowerment and self-determination. Why do you believe Chicano Park and the way the community came together to found it still resonates with people um, all these years later? Well, for many of us, um, we we've known a lot of people who have, you know, worked for the park, given so much of their time and love to the park, who, who passed on. And, and so, uh, in fact, we just lost somebody who was really instrumental. Uh, Senora Irene Mena passed away. She was 
1991, and she she's considered by many as kind of the abuelita of the Brown Berets. And she just passed away. So, you know, a lot of people have kind of given given their life's energy to the park, and, and you feel that there. And so you know, you know that it's important to continue this work in honor of, of their sacrifices. Um, so I think for many of us, it resonates in that way. Um, I think for others, you know, especially looking at the issues that we're dealing with now with the Black Lives Matter, which is, you know, not a new issue. I mean, these issues have been going on forever. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, this part fits in with all of those kinds of movements and that kind of talking about equality and, and fairness. And, you know, these people experienced their neighborhood being destroyed and no one even asked them, you know, no one even asked them, what do you think? You know, how do you feel about this? It just happened, you know? And so, um, I think that 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 resonates with anyone who cares about justice and cares about people um, mattering and people being treated with a a small semblance of dignity, you know? So I think it gets at that core for many of us um, about that. I mean, I remember about 30 years ago, I had a cousin, and she's a wonderful person. She's from Arizona. And she came to Chicano Park Day because she wanted to see us dance and she wanted to be there. And she really loved it, right? And then in the end, she's and she's older than me, so I'm 65. She's about maybe 80 um, now, so she's 15 years older than me. And so she grew up, you know, those 10 or 15 years made a huge difference in people's uh, political attitudes, right? Because I grew up in a time after Vietnam War, right? And so... The people who were raised before that which were much more complacent, much more willing to, you know, kind of go along with things. And she came to the park and she really, really enjoyed it. But I remember her telling me afterwards, you know, that she didn't understand some of the speakers, you know, because at that time, Corky Gonzalez would come every year and speak. And then the Brown Berets would get up and speak. And she said, there's just a lot of anger. Why are they so angry, you know? And we talked a little bit about it, but it was there was only so much she could take in, you know. Well, now you should see her on Facebook. <laughs> she is so political. <laughs> she outdoes me sometimes, you know. And she um, she's amazing, the awareness that she's built. And I think the park is part of it. I think I've been part of it. But she just, you know, started to really study the issues and realize, you know, that People have not been treated fairly, and this is supposed to be a country that's built on equality, right? And so we have to live up, we have to make that dream a reality for everyone if this country is going to continue as it is. And that's a question right now. Will this country continue to be what it is? You know, I don't know. It's really interesting. Only time will tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We could have another major revolution on our hands before you know it. But yeah. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Well, with that said, um, do you have any closing comments or anything else you'd like to let our readers know about um, yourself or the or the rollout of the book? I would just say, you know, um, one of the one of the individuals that I interviewed in the book is um, a young woman named Teresa. No. Teresa's daughter. Her name is Nopani Hernandez. 
and she she says in her book one of her messages that she gives children because I asked each of the people that I interviewed to give a message to the children and her message is you know um, get out of your comfort zone you know get um, do some research look into your history the more you learn about your history and your past the the more that that will impact your composure and the way you carry yourself in this world. And I thought, you know, that's really profound. You know, most of us don't really even think about how learning about where we came from really impacts how we carry ourselves and how others see us, you know. And, you know, and I, I'm like, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm a little bit, <laughs> a little bit dense, you know. It takes me a while to get stuff sometimes because... Everywhere I go, a lot of people are always telling me really nice things, you know. Oh, you're such a role model. Oh, you've done this. Oh, you've done that, you know. And and I've gotten some awards along the way and things like that. And I always just think, yeah, but, you know, I'm just me. I'm still just me. I'm the same person I was, you know, forever. I haven't changed. I'm just doing this good work. Um, but we all can do that, you know, and we all should do that. And so... I think she's right, you know, it, it really does impact how you carry yourself and how how you move in this world. So learn about your history, you know, and don't be afraid of Chicano Park. It's not a scary place, it's a beautiful place. Get to know it and, you know, get to know more about who you are. Absolutely. Well, Beatrice, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me um, for a second time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now we're getting to be friends, see? <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much, thank you. I really appreciate. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, interview you both of these times. I really learned a lot. Good. Well, it's been nice meeting you too. And let me know when you know when we can see it. Good luck with all your work. Awesome. Thank you. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Don't give up. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Bye. If you would like the purchase of a copy of The Spirit of Chicano Park, it is available now through Tolteca Press, as well as on Amazon Books and Barnes & Noble. This episode of Step Off Radio was recorded in San Diego, California. Our theme music was composed by DJ Root, and our score was performed and conducted by Thomas Chicone. This has been a Step Off Magazine production.